Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. Happiness, contentment, subjective well-being. Can we measure how happy people are? And if so, what can we learn and do with this information? My guest today, Carol Graham, explains how happiness research works and what it means for public policy. Carol, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks, Fred. Uh, I wanted to ask first about your title. You are the Leo Pazwalski Senior Fellow at Brookings. Who was Leo Pazwalski? Leo Pazwalski was an amazing guy who nobody really knows about. He was the first uh, director of international studies at Brookings, which was kind of why I have his title. But more, uh, more importantly, he was very involved from the State Department in setting up the United Nations. He was a sort of quintessential Brookings-type scholar. He was an economist, but he worked on broader issues of you know, international political development. Um, he was from Ukraine, but emigrated to the United States and became an active participant in setting up both Brookings and uh, also working at State Department, setting up the UN. And he had work that crossed disciplines, but also focused on important policy questions. So if we were to think about what Brookings scholars do, he's certainly a good model for us to follow. Well, I think it's appropriate that you hold his chair because I know you've been in foreign policy and global and governance studies as well. Uh, you're in global now. And, your research and economic studies. And too. economic studies. So you've been in four of our five research programs. That's right. Our topic today is, I think, at the intersection of academic research and public policy, and that's subjective well-being or happiness uh, right. research. Can you uh, describe what you do in this area, what it is? Right. Well, subjective well-being is basically all of the different ways in which people report their well-being. So as opposed to standard social science metrics, which just look at people, people's revealed preferences, how, what they purchase, how they vote, subjective well-being surveys and the economics of happiness, the measurement of well-being more generally actually listens to what people say. We don't ask people, does this or that make you happy? We collect data on these various dimensions of well-being, and I'll get to those in a second. And then we also collect data on their age, their income, their gender, mm -hmm. where they live, if they live with more or less corruption, if they live with more or less crime, if they live with good or bad environmental quality. And then we can measure the effects of those latter variables on their well-being. Happiness is the colloquial term that captures all the media attention. It's the pursuit of happiness is in our Declaration of Independence. Happiness is in the title of three of my books. <laughs> it's obviously what people are innately interested in. But as we have gotten more refined in measuring well-being and subjective well-being more specifically, um, we measure it in two distinct dimensions. One is what we call experienced or hedonic well-being, basically how, how people experience their daily lives. It's very good measures for quality of life. Are people stressed or worried as they commute, for example? The second dimension, um, which is probably more along the lines of a typical Brookings public policy topic or question, is what we call evaluative well-being. Okay. Um, and that is how people evaluate their lives as a whole. And that encompasses people's ability to make choices in their lives, to take up opportunities, and to lead the kind of lives that they want to lead. 
I like to think of the first kind of well-being as benthamite well-being, sort okay. of hedonic. Are people content as they the, experience their lives? And, and that's, that's named something after we should care about. Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, the, the English philosopher, English late philosopher. 18th century, early 19th Absolutely. century. Absolutely. Okay. And I like to think of the second dimension as Aristotelian well-being. Oh. Aristotle thought of happiness not as contentment but as eudaimonia, which is a Greek word that combines the words eu, meaning abundance, so welfare, abundance, and daemon, which is the power to control your individual fate or destiny. So if you think of um, this evaluative well-being also including people's ability to lead and seek fulfilling lives, I think that wraps nicely back around to Jefferson's concept of the pursuit of happiness. Right. I don't think his concept was about contentment. I think it was about the ability to pursue life in the way that one wanted to lead a fulfilling life. Let it be known that this is the first time on the podcast that we've introduced uh, the ancient Greek and the uh, and the early modern English philosopher. I think that's terrific. So using these two dimensions, these two frameworks um, of happiness, how does that drive the study of subjective well-being, the collection of information? Right. Well, there, there's now what went from a, a merry band of a couple of economists working with a couple of uh, psychologists, and I was very proud to be one of those early on. There is now an entire science of well-being measurement, which encompasses a range of social science disciplines, uh, economists for sure, but also sociologists, psychologists. And people collect these metrics in both dimensions and based on very simple questions in large-scale survey data sets. And then they can, they can look at the effects of all kinds of different things on well-being. So let me give you an example of the kinds of questions. They're very simple. They're very inexpensive mm -hmm. to collect. If you want to measure hedonic or experienced well-being, we ask questions about positive affect and negative affect. Um, so the first is smiling. How often did you smile yesterday? How often did you feel happy yesterday? Two examples. For the negative dimension, we ask, did you feel very worried yesterday on a scale? Or did you feel very anxious yesterday? Again, mm -hmm. a scale from not at all to very. And how often did you feel angry yesterday? And psychologists are very careful, uh, much more careful than us blunt-tooled economists, I would say, about saying that you have to measure these dimensions separately. They're not one continuum of mm -hmm. each other. In other words, people can be happy yesterday and they can have felt angry yesterday, right? right. They're, they're different. Typically, people who smile a lot or happy a lot aren't very angry, but you, they are separate. Secondly, life evaluation is much more of a scale that is a continuum. So basically, we ask how satisfied are you with your life in general on a 10-point scale with one being not at all mm -hmm. and, and 10 being very. And these, there are other derivations of that question, but um, the, the latter kind of question in particular tracks very consistently with, with certain characteristics that people have around the world within countries across countries. So people... In this dimension, more money does matter to higher life evaluations. I don't think it's that more and more money buys more and more happiness, but more money, more income gives people to make the kinds of choices mm -hmm. that they want to make in their lives and they can lead the kind of lives they want to lead. In contrast, money and this smiling or worrying dimension, um, you know, being destitute is terrible for everything. But after you have basic needs met, more money won't make you smile more, more money won't make you worry less. So the latter dimension is the dimension that's most often measured. Um, it's the one that's included in most government statistics today. Not the only one, but to the extent governments are beginning to launch into measuring 
uh, well-being on a, a large scale, and they are around the world, typically the, the, we know the most about these life satisfaction questions. That doesn't mean that it's not worth collecting the hedonic metrics, mm-hmm. and indeed the British government is already doing so. And I just finished serving on a National Academy of Sciences panel where we were tasked with recommending you know, which metrics we should be collecting mm-hmm. in U.S. statistics, and we strongly recommended that we, that we collect both kinds. You're really talking about adding four questions that take about 30 seconds each to ask to any survey. So you're not talking about a hugely expensive exercise. Are these kinds of questions, especially on the hedonic side, did you smile yesterday? Were you angry yesterday? Uh, do people answer those honestly? Because I, I could not tell you how many times I smiled yesterday. Well, the question's probably more, you know, how frequently did you smile yesterday mm-hmm. going from not at all to very? Okay. And there's actually much less bias in these questions and then the life evaluation questions because they're very straightforward. You, you know, you're going through these very quickly. You'd have to kind of think a lot to lie to them, right? You'd probably, you'll say not at all if you had a really awful day. They also reflect innate affect traits. So if you're a generally cheerful person, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll respond positively. And psychologists find that the answers to these questions track very closely with psychological measures of well-being. Life evaluation is a little more complicated because you, when you know, you're asked how, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, it gives you more pause for thought, right? Um, so we're very question, careful to put the life evaluation questions number one in the survey. Because if I ask you, you know, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, after three questions about, you know, is your marriage good or, you know, do you have enough money or whatever it is, that's going to frame it one way or the other. Life evaluation questions are also, you know, well, any of them will, could be biased for one person depending on if they had a really awful day the day before. But here the law of large numbers kick in. And we our surveys are giant. I mean, the Gallup World Poll, which I'm involved in and that we use, is 1,000 people per country in 162 countries a year. And we now have over eight years of data. So if you do the math, it's hundreds of thousands of observations. And so, yes, there are biased data points for particular people, but the patterns are incredibly consistent. How do you then compare the results across countries with, say, modern Western democracies like the United States or the Scandinavian countries versus Southeast Asia or uh, respondents in Africa? Right. So there are a couple of things. People love to look at these country averages, you know, what are average happiness levels mm-hmm. for the U.S. and average happiness levels for Denmark and then Nigeria with the question not very well specified. And for country averages, first of all, capture cultural differences in the way people answer surveys. I'd like to give the example of a British friend of mine who got so tired of being told to have a nice day in the U.S. that she started saying, thank you, I have other plans, right? <laughs> so in some cultures, you know, people just respond more cheerfully because that's just a cultural trait. Latin Americans always score higher than their incomes would predict. Eastern Europeans score much lower than their incomes would predict. So one thing you're capturing is just cross-country differences. They, they affect the results a little bit. Another thing that you capture, though, when you just use an open-ended question without specifying which well-being dimension, right? Say you just say, generally speaking, how happy are you? You capture norms and expectations. And and so in very poor places, sometimes you'll get a lot of people saying they're very happy. But you're not specifying, you know, your life as a whole, okay. all these other things. You're just sort of saying. And then poor people can adapt to a lot of bad things. And if they're emphasizing this kind of hedonic dimension, well, I'm okay. I'm, al- I'm alive. My fr- I have my friends and family. At a daily level, 
they may be very happy. When you ask them a more framed question about their life as a whole or how their life compares to the best possible life they can imagine, both questions which capture this life evaluation, they'll score much lower. So on the one hand, just by which question you use, which dimension of well-being you use, you can capture how people in different contexts are experiencing sort of their daily lives versus how their kind of broader life evaluations. Another thing we do is more of a methodological or econometric thing, but when we're using these large-scale data sets and have hundreds of thousands of observations, we control for the shared errors that come from respondents from each country. Um, What does that mean? So we use, so say, you know how I was talking about how people, you know, Americans might be more positive as they answer surveys in general and Eastern Europeans might be more negative. Well, we include sort of a control that collects all of American responses and it picks up the extent to which the responses are not determined by income, age, gender, all the specific variables that we marriage, but but just by sort of some Americanness, right? Okay. And we can control for that, or by a Danishness, or by uh, you know the French are notoriously curmudgeonly, and I, my grandmother's from Paris, <laughs> so I'm not. I can say so that can without say that. feeling. Um, at some level, we're able to account for that cultural difference. And so we also can say, well, we know that Americans typically will score a little higher than Brits just because of that cultural bias. We know that Nigerians score way above what anything would predict. Venezuelans as well. There's just kind of some cultural thing going on there. And we can tell you how much that is. You know, how how different are they from the average? Okay. I want to go back to something uh, you said earlier. It reminded me that you've spoken about the paradox of the happy peasant and the miserable millionaire. Can you talk about that? Sure. That's actually what got me into all of this research to begin with was I was doing uh, research on mobility rates, people moving up and down the income Mm -hmm. ladder, moving in and out of poverty uh, about 15 years ago, initially in Peru, where where I was born and I'm from, have done a lot of research. And it was at a time that people were saying globalization was terrible for the poor. And yet we were looking at remarkable rates of mobility, higher in Peru than in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know how people thought they'd done. And when we went back and we re-interviewed people for whom we had objective income data for 10 years, so we knew exactly what had happened to them, right? Over half of the people with the most upward mobility reported their situation today was worse than it was before. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we had poor rural people the happy peasants, who hadn't had any income change at all and reported their situation to be fine or even better. So those were happy peasants and frustrated achievers. As I got into this a little more, kept finding these progress paradoxes where sort of people with more means could report to be less happy, sometimes in the hedonic dimension, precisely because they had very high expectations. And the other thing that gets into this a little bit are comparison effects. Right, So you'll take two people of the same income level and put one in a wealthier neighborhood and one in a poorer neighborhood. It turns out that the, even though you would think the wealthy neighborhood would be good for all kinds of reasons, the one in the poorer neighborhood is happy because his or her income is on par or higher than those of their neighbors versus you can have a millionaire who lives in a super millionaire neighborhood and if their house is smaller, that, that will make them less happy mm-hmm. or less satisfied. It, it's a generalization. It doesn't always happen. Right. But. So looking now at all the data you have about subjective well-being on both dimensions, you've written in a couple of places that the, uh, the standard determinants of happiness are very stable 
across countries worldwide. So what are some of those determinants? So the things we know that are very stable are, um, first of all, there's an age and happiness relationship, okay. which is remarkably stable. across. The, we just measured this in Mongolia, and it held there. So there's a U-shaped curve between sure. age and happiness, with a low point being roughly 44 years for the U.S., 48 years for Latin America, and 50 years for Russia. Not a good story for Russia because right. 50 is life expectancy for males. But so the the kind of the middle age years are exactly as predicted. They're stressed. Um, you know, people often have double burdens of teenage kids and older parents, whatever it might be. There's also a learning to you know now you know what you're going to be when you grow up right. kind of effect. Aspirations exactly. align with reality, and then as people get older, they actually get happier as they age. Psychologists find that young people, for example, have much more variation in their emotions and mm -hmm. their well-being. Older people are much more stable. Um, there's a bias because happier people live longer, so the older people die off. So when you go up right. the curve, as long as people are relatively healthy, that's age-adjusted health, right? Okay. You can't expect to have the same health at 75 that you do at 25, but if you're relatively healthy for 75-year-old, we see the end. And also for being in some sort of stable partnership. Okay. So right. age is very important, I mean, very regular. I, I brought a, a picture of this graph um, of the age to, to level of happiness. And it actually, I, and I'll post it online because people can't that, see it, of course, on the great. audio. But it, it, it looks like a smile to me. Yes. I think yeah, that's uh, I think that's a nice accident of the data <laughs> uh, um, that it coincides with happiness work. In fact, that a, a, a colleague of mine, Andrew Oswald, recently published a paper or a couple of years ago in Science showing that even apes have a U-shaped <laughs> age curve. So there is something biological as people age with their, you know, well-being levels. Income, meanwhile, matters, e even though, you know, th there's all this debate, does money buy happiness or not? Uh, uh, we can say within countries, income matters. Across countries, income also matters, but they're more, as all boats go up, people also expect more, right? Mm -hmm. But with for individuals, income matters. As I mentioned, it matters a lot more to life evaluation than to sort of the hedonic well-being. Employment status is incredibly important. So... Everywhere we've studied it, unemployed people are less happy than employed people. And long-term spells of unemployment are something people never adapt back from. So it's, they have scarring effects. Uh, marriage or stable partnerships matter. Everywhere we study well-being or happiness, we find that married people are happier than non-married people. Now, there's a selection bias there. So that what you're really picking up in these um, data sets is that happier people are more likely to marry each other. Mm -hmm. The overtime studies of marriage show actually that the the positive effect of marriage lasts about a year and then people go back to their pre-marriage well-being levels, but you still have two happier people married to each other. Sure. Um, there's a great paper by a colleague of mine called You Can't Be Happier Than Your Wife, and it shows <laughs> that the probability of divorce is highest when you have asymmetries in happiness levels. So better to have two happy people married to each other or two unhappy people married to each other, but not a happy person married to an unhappy person because they drive each other crazy. Well. So what else? Employment, stable partnerships, health is incredibly important. In fact, more important than income to well-being. Health and income are typically quite related to each other, um, but health really matters. So not only do, and not only does good health matter to happiness, but happier people are typically healthier. Right. What about something like uh, religion? Religion, it depends how you measure it. Most places we've studied it, there is a positive correlation between religiosity and well-being, having faith and well-being. 
not where religion is an extreme or divisive force, then that relationship goes away. You mm -hmm. can imagine why. But again, we don't, a bit like marriage, um, there's a direction of causality problem. So it may be that happier people are more likely to be religious. We have a new paper coming out on religion and well-being around the world, which shows that it suggests anyway that the causality may run from happier people being more likely to be religious. And what about a question of agency, people who think that they can improve their lot in life versus people who don't think they can? That seems to have a big impact on their their outlook. That's a, that's a huge topic, and it's a topic that I'm really trying to do a lot more research on in the future, which is basically we know that people with higher levels of well-being tend to be more optimistic about their future and their children's future and to perceive that they have future opportunities. We also know that people with, you know, positive perceptions of their future are more likely to invest in their future. Mm -hmm. So this linkage between sort of having a sense that you can control your future and if you invest in it, you're going to be able to have more choices is incredibly important. And I think it's a contribution that this line of research can make is understanding those channels better, what determines those. Some mm -hmm. of it we know is innate character traits. You know, there are some, some of well-being is just genetically determined. But some is determined by the environment. And in, at a time that our society, I think, is increasingly divided and we're justifiably concerned that our age-old myth of being the, or belief in being the land of opportunity is being eroded right. by a very unequal distribution of opportunities, I think this is a way to, for us to understand that better. And if we were to go back to Jefferson, you know, I'd hate for us to end up in a place where we have the pursuit of happiness, but it's an unequal pursuit of happiness, right? Right. Well, he... Uh... He never talked about the achievement of happiness. He talked about everyone has the right to pursue happiness. But I think what we're seeing now is that some people don't even have the means to pursue happiness to begin with. Right. And if they're stuck in a sort of bad well-being, low expectations, no opportunity outlook trap, that can be a vicious cycle because they mm -hmm. won't invest in their own future. They won't invest in their children's education. Um, and so we – and, you know, you compare that with – the alternative, a person who sees opportunities, invests in them, invests in their children having opportunities, and you can see widening gaps. Um, and we, you know, we know they're widening gaps. We know much more about the widening gaps in income, I think, than we know about the widening gaps in opportunity, although we certainly know some. And Bell Sawhill and other colleagues here at Brookings have done tremendous work right. in that area. But I, I would like to link that with what we know about well-being. So what are the contributions, to use a word you used a few minutes ago, the contributions of this field of research to uh, making public policy? Although a lot of people love to talk about, oh, should we replace GNP with gross national, national happiness and all kinds of things. Like I, I in mean, Bhutan does the, that, right? Right. Sort of, they do. But, <laughs> um, but really, first of all, I think everything I've said suggests that, that we really need to think about these different distinct dimensions of well-being. And any one index that merges them all is losing a lot of information. But what the metrics can contribute is to complement what income-based metrics tell us, right? And mm -hmm. where the most interesting information is where there are gaps. So, for example, when you find upwardly mobile people who you assume would be happy and have high levels of well-being and they report to be very unhappy, well, what is it? What's driving that? In some cases, it's uncertainty. In some cases, it's rising inequality. In some cases, it's frustrated expectations. Um, the other thing that we are able to do with these metrics is that we can examine questions where consumption choices don't tell us very much. Mm -hmm. So think about the welfare effects of macroeconomic or institutional arrangements 
individuals can't change those. They can't consume their way out of them, right? So, right. but you might be made very unhappy by high unemployment rates, or happy by them. Who knows? But um, or inflation rates, or what about the well-being effects of a different environmental quality, right? Um, you can't really reveal a preference that or a choice that you could examine through the traditional metrics. But with surveys, you know, we take all this other data on people's socioeconomic demographic traits, and then we measure how their well-being varies with these different arrangements. We get a, get a sense of how those institutional or broader macro arrangements affect their well-being. And the second kind of question is exactly back to this agency question, which is we can also better understand the welfare effects of people who live in situations where they aren't able to make a choice. Think about somebody in a lower caste in India, mm -hmm. you know, who doesn't send their kid to school, for example. Is that really a choice or is it just simply a reflection of lack of agency? They have no expectations for the future. Their, their, chil their children will be in the same caste. Schools are of terrible quality. So how do you, you know, how would you understand the welfare effects of being in that arrangement? There's no choice to observe, but through survey data, we can get a handle on it. I know that the, uh, the British government has, as, as you indicated earlier, national well-being indicators on, on the hedonic dimension. Right. Uh, both you, dimensions, actually. On both dimensions. Uh, so they are actually setting benchmarks and measuring and implementing policies to try to achieve some of their goals. Do you, do you see something like that happening in the United States? It's happening in a huge way. Right now yeah. at the local level, the state of Vermont has just completed its first well-being survey, and they included the British questions. And I can tell you because I, I helped them out a bit. But mm. basically, Vermonters are slightly, slightly happier in terms of all the dimensions than the Brits, but very modestly, which is remarkable given that, you know, talking about the whole country of Britain versus the kind of green, lovely state of Vermont. Mm -hmm. But the one place where Vermonters score much higher is on a eudaimonic question where they're asked if they have purpose or meaning in their life. And there they score higher than the national average for Britain. The I think it's the city of Portland has well-being metrics. The city of Santa Monica is considering well-being metrics. The state of Maryland has a gross um, progress indicator, which includes okay. well-being. So at the local level, it's bubbling up. At the national level, I mean, in a way, that was what our National Academies panel was tasked with, saying, you know, what should we be mm -hmm. thinking about at the national level? And our report and our approach was cautious. One, because the U.S. has such a complex statistical system that you know, there are lots of ongoing surveys where it's very easy to include well-being metrics. Some are already in the American Time Use Survey, for example. Right. Um, and to sort of start to build from the bottom up versus to make it a highly political exercise um, where the science gets tossed into some debate about, you know, are we are, are we trying to be like Bhutan and replace GNP versus right. let's collect the metrics and start to use them robustly to inform some policy questions and that will take on a life of its own. Looking ahead, what are some of the big unanswered questions or additional areas of research that you're focused on in the uh, subjective well-being happiness field? My biggest focus combines this kind of opportunity and agency approach or questions with the very difficult to measure but important question of what does well-being cause, right? I mean, at some at some level, we could we can assume well-being is a good thing, but that's an assumption. It's a lot more powerful if we can show that well-being actually leads to behaviors that we really that we care about that sort of result in more prosperous and more coherent societies. What what does what does frustration result in? Some work I've been doing has been looking at propensity to protest around the world and looking at well-being levels. And we've found 
that the typical, the you know, the prototypical protester in Chile, Brazil, Russia, Ukraine, Thailand, and mm. Turkey, just to name a few, and they're not poor countries. They're countries that are right. growing, right? Has not been sort of the nothing to lose poor person, but been sort of roughly middle income, roughly middle age respondent who has who wants to get ahead but sees future opportunities are frustrated. Who has something to lose. Has something to lose. And we find higher levels of stress and anger and much lower uh, scores for sort of perceptions about what their future well-being will look like. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating and, and quite an education, so I really appreciate your time in Thank our podcast you, today. Great questions. Thank you. To learn more about Carol Graham and her research, visit brookings.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.